Welcome to another Kingdom Casts podcast. We've got plenty of spoilers for you on the new comic books released this week, suggestions on what to buy and what not to buy, maybe save you a little money, or tell you which titles would be better worth your money. We also talk about some movie gossip that just came out fresh today, and beyond all expectations whatsoever, Albert delves into Satan worshiping. I'm not even sure how we got there, just accept it and go with it. I had to. This podcast is for the week of July 24th, 2019. It does contain spoilers of the comic books that came out this Wednesday, as well as spoilers of past comic books. So you are forewarned. I'm Stan Daniel, and with me as always is Albert Marsh. So, Albert. Yeah. J.J. <laughs> Abrams on Superman and Green Lantern movies. I'm not Abrams' biggest fan, but it's better than what we got. Yeah, uh uh-huh, that's right. How do you like Star Wars now, pal? Next time I see you, you better be wearing a My Heart Belongs to Kylo shirt. I don't even own Star Wars clothing. Or I'm gay for Ray Balka, I'll buy it for you. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, yeah, that's right. We're coming to your neighborhood and we're going to mess up your house. You argue with Abrams, he'll Star Trek the DC Universe, pal. (laughs) We'll get two movies about Jimmy Olsen's feelings or something like that. (laughs) No, seriously, you're not excited about this? I'm indifferent, I suppose. I like Abrams. I've liked most everything Abrams has done. I especially like his Star Wars stuff. I think he'll be great on Superman and Green Lantern. I'm really looking forward to it. He did a Superman scriptment one time called Flyby, is that correct? That seems familiar to me. I don't think it's something he'll be able to do. I think he's going to have to start fresh. Yeah. But yeah, I seem to recall a scriptman out there that he had written at one time for Superman. And I read a little bit of it. And this is before the DC Cinematic Universe situation with Cavell and all set in. I read a little bit before it and I thought, hey, that's that's not half bad. I think he'll have a great take on especially Green Lantern. Of course, they're going to recast Superman. They may not. I don't know, man. Cavell has zero enthusiasm for it. It shows you want somebody that's enjoying the role. They don't have to be Cress Evans level happy about everything, but they at least need to show up for things like the Shazam cameo. And people can say, oh, that was his agents. That was this. That was that. No, no. He, he didn't I don't know. Do I, think you're, I think you're thinking a little too hard on the Shazam thing. It's not the Shazam thing I'm thinking too hard about. It's the role of Superman. This guy has just absolute zero level enthusiasm for it. I don't think he deserves to be Superman. That's pretty harsh. No, I'm I'm going to be pretty honest. He's been pretty harsh with the audience, too. I just don't think he does. When it started off, when he was first cast, I thought, wow, he looks like it. Man of Steel, I made an argument for Man of Steel. Superman versus Batman? Okay, now you're pushing it. Justice League? Oh, dear God, really? Yeah. The aftermath, the way he's acted afterward. I mean, look at Momoa. You know, I'm not a big fan of the Aquaman movie, but damn, Momoa is happy to be Aquaman. Yeah. Uh, And it shows. My issue is Abram gets, and you did it with Star Trek, and you did it with Star Wars, Mm -hmm. and he'd do it with Superman too is that his Superman would just be a retread of that Richard Donner movie. I don't think so. I don't think you're going to get an origin story Superman 
again out of this. I think they're forging ahead with their separate movies, but at the same time, the separate movies are all interconnected. Shazam was aware of Aquaman and the events in Aquaman and Wonder Woman, but mysteriously did not mention anything from Justice League. Did mention that Batman and Superman exists in the yeah. same universe. I just don't think we're going to retread common ground in this. I think he's going to go into it knowing that the audience knows and understands what Superman's origin is and just do something that kind of fits in here. His first Green Lantern, I'm, I have no idea where he's going to start with that. It would have to be an origin movie either way. There has to be a little bit of origin to Green Lantern to break him away from the Ryan Reynolds fiasco. Yeah. I read that. I thought, yeah, okay, this is pretty good. I'm especially pumped to see what he's going to do with Superman. I'm curious about who they're going to. I really do believe they have to recast Superman. I mean, they recast Batman. It's sparkly vampire guy from Twilight. Patterson, right? It'll work. I make fun. I say that sort of thing. He has done a lot of movies that break him away from that role. He made his millions there, and then he immediately went into these independent movies that don't really have a huge paycheck to him. And I've seen him in a few things. It's going to be difficult to typecast him in anything. I think he just needs a, another big role to get the general public's perception away from him. I think that'll work. I'm okay with him as Batman, or I'm curious to see how he performs as Batman. I'm willing to give him a shot, which is more than I can say for most of the internet's response. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm okay with that. I just want them to get rid of Cavell, put somebody else in there, somebody that understands that the priority between playing bad guy number four in Mission Impossible number 75 and a 80-year-old character that's an American icon, the American icon comes first, and that third, fourth rate fiddle next to Tom Cruise gets pushed down the pike a little when it comes to shaving your mustache for a movie. That's not his fault, though. I understand. It's Warner Brothers' fault as much as it is his. Warner Brothers should have had a right-to-appear clause in his contract that he had to put this character has priority on reshoots and everything. Tom Cruise's company had enough sense to do it in Mission Impossible 35 for whatever henchman he was playing. And that's why uh, Mission Impossible won out over Justice League. If you're hired to play Superman, your priority should be playing Superman. It was with Christopher Reeve, and dear God, look at what they did to poor Chris Reeve in Superman 3 and 4. But Superman 4 is Christopher Reeve's fault. Oh, is it? That's his movie. Now, the, the cheapness of that movie is not his fault. Yeah. But that story and everything, that's all him. He wanted to do the anti-nuke thing. I don't think, yeah. does he have a script writing credit on it? I, I don't know. I know that is not a Warner Brothers movie. Could be wrong, but I thought Superman 4 was a canon movie. I just want him to recast Cavell at this point. I was rooting for him to start with. Now I don't care if we ever see him again. Maybe he can come back for the next Mission Impossible as a janitor or something. I don't know. Anyway. <laughs> That's how, that's, that's how I feel about, that's not as much how, about how I feel about Cavell as it is how I feel about Superman and the level of priority that should go into making a Superman movie or relaying Superman in any medium. I cringe at bad Superman comic book stories too. So, well, we had a pretty good reading list this week. Albert, what do you want to start off with? We'll do history of Marvel universe. Number one. History of Marvel Universe number one, and then yeah. I tell you what, let's go to Marvel's epilogue. Yeah, which, we'll do those yeah. two back to back. So they sort of they complement each other. Yeah. 
All right. Well, what was your take on it? It's very informative. It's got really, really great art to go with it. Just fantastic artwork. A little on the dry side. They try to frame it up as something different, but in reality, you're just sort of reading a handbook of the timeline is what it amounts to. They don't block it off like a handbook. They just put a bunch of art with it. It's somewhat reminiscent of something they published in the late 80s called Marvel Saga, except what Marvel Saga did was they directly borrowed art from the original comic books and slapped it together in a format and then put narrative editorial boxes over it saying, and while this was going on, this was going on. Wade at least comes into it, and I can't think of a better person to do this series than Mark Wade. Mark Wade comes into this with the aspect of it's being told has a story by Galactus to Franklin Richards. The task of this book, or what he's been tasked with in this book, that's a tremendous undertaking. For instance, we have him cover a few billion years in just one comic book. He covers a lot of stuff in this book. Yeah, and with a lesser artist, it would be chaotic, to say the least. Rodriguez, he's masterful in jumping from one sequence to another. Artwork was really, really great artwork. Yeah, Rodriguez does, does a fantastic job on that. Yeah. To the point where you almost don't even need the written word to even know what you're looking at. If you're one of the higher-end, mildly obsessed Marvel fans and just saw his artwork, you'd be able to follow what's going on in it. Yeah. Very clearly. Very well done on both of their behalves. And th again, this is not an easy task. Yes, it is a little bit dry, but what we're doing here is a history lesson. And because Wade knew that this was going to be dry, who did he choose as the narrator? Galactus. They don't come much drier in wit or anything else than Galactus. He's just not there to joke. There's no emotion to him. So Mark Wade chose a wonderful narrative choice in this, and it's very straightforward. And all of this is stuff that people are going to be interested in, what with the current movie slate coming out with The Eternals. I do have one question, and I went back through the book to see if I was overlooking this. Where's Mephisto? He's not in that book. He touches up on Belasco, but he stays clear of Mephisto. Yeah, he didn't he didn't bring up Mephisto at all. Yeah, I mean Mephisto was not even in the artwork. Yeah, hmm. I, I looked through it twice trying to find him because I was really curious at what point does Mephisto come through? How relevant is his origin? You and I are familiar with Mark Wade enough to know that he didn't forget Mephisto. No, but that may just be something did at a, on like a separate thing. Because some of this is not necessarily all of it. It's just straightforward. Like, here's year zero forward. It just sort of like, well, here's this stuff up to this point. Then we're going to go back a little bit and go from here to there. And then go back a little bit and go from here to there. Well, I guess once we get into other aspects of hell or whatever dimension of hell is, we may cover Mephisto more on that end. When he says Asgardian gods... Hella is included. We got that. We don't need a specific review of Hella to understand she's one of the Asgardians. That's fine. Mephisto stands alone, and he is one of the major hierarchy in these cosmic characters. You don't think it's at all possible that editorial said, okay, we don't want you to say anything about Mephisto right now. Just kind of forget him for the moment. I doubt it. You don't think editorial has any Mephisto plans or knows of something Mephisto coming down the pike in cinematic or somewhere else, or they're trying to lay out a more definitive situation for Mephisto? No, I mean, if, I mean, even if they had something in movie-wise, they they'd still just throw him in here as far as setting up his origin.
Because yeah. they've done, they put more modern stuff in this thing too. Like he references Jason Aaron's Avengers run with all the, the 1 million BC Avengers, whatever they're called. Yeah. They're, they're referenced in this book. I noticed that. That's what made Mephisto's absence a little more prevalent to me. Otherwise, this is a wonderful handbook for the origin and history of the Marvel Universe. It hits all the relevant touchstones. And again, he covers a few billion years in the first issue. It's nice to have them review the origins of their universe every now and again, do a walkthrough. DC Universe did it after Crisis, and I loved those three books that they put together. Of course, they became quickly irrelevant, but at that time, those were wonderful books. Now, on the opposite of this, we have Kurt Buzak and Alex Ross in Marvels, and we got a little extra something from them this time, did we not? Yes. In the form of Marvel's epilogue. I was a big fan of the original Marvel series. They've been re-releasing it in the annotated version where they break down and in the back of the books, they give you the direct reference to this scene happened in this book while this scene happened in this other book at this time and this year and this release. They've done a wonderful job with the annotated version, but then we get Marvel's epilogue where Buzak and Ross come back and they give us this wonderful moment in front of 30 Rockefeller Center in the very early 80s. I think the scene was actually published. I think it was in 1979. Yeah, because yeah, it was one of the early early X-Men stories with Claremont, wasn't it? Yes, it, it was one of the very early. As a matter of fact, it was this series of events where we learned that Wolverine's claws are part of his anatomy and not just in the gloves. Yeah. And it's very iconic moments. As a matter of fact, if you take a moment and you look at that shot, some of the cameos that are in there, you've got Nick Fury and Countessa in the same scene as all of the X-Men. Of course, the X-Men are clearly the focus. Did you catch Superman and Lois there? No, I did not catch them either. Okay, well, there's Superman and Lois in another angle of the scene. And somebody that I think is Dick Giordano is looking at them off from the side of it as well. But they put a lot of little hidden Easter eggs in it. Basically, it recounts the scene where the X-Men are attacked by Sentinels at 30 Rockefeller Plaza during Christmas time. And it was just wonderful. It was a wonderful, it's exactly what it is. It's an epilogue to the Marvels series. And my view on that, as far as like whether it's Marvel or DC, these comic book companies, these two are owned by multi-billion dollar companies. Yeah. When I look at this book and read it and how great it was, whatever Alex Ross wants as far as money or writing or creative freedom, if it gets him doing interior work, just give it to him. Yeah, I think like so. He does such wonderful cover work for Marvel. And he's done wonderful cover work for DC. And he did a bunch of stuff for Dynamite. He has no equal when it comes to the interior work of a... Like, there is nobody else. I'm not saying he's influential as as big or as important as Kirby, because he's not. There's only one Alex Ross. And that's probably all we're ever going to get, is just one Alex Ross. Just pay the man what he wants and let him do interior work. So in closing, whore the hell out of Alex Ross so we get as much from him as possible. While we've got him, got it. Yeah, just (laughs) whatever it takes, however much, however many truckloads of money it takes, get that man to just have him work on interior stuff till the day he dies. I agree. I mean, his stuff is just devastatingly good. That scene where Storm uses the lightning to change her civilian clothes into her Storm outfit that was designed by Dave Cockrum, uh, that was beautiful. 
the scene where Wolverine bumps into Phil, the photojournalist that Marvels is told from his point of view. That scene was just great. All of it just worked wonderfully. We were very lucky to get this. And I could say the same about Buziak. I miss reading Buziak. He had a bunch of health problems, though, didn't he? Yeah, I believe he did. Because I know for a long time that's what the deal with Astro City was. Like, you know, we didn't get Astro City for years because Music had some health problems and he was just going to hoard up as much as he possibly could before they started putting that book out again. Yeah, it seems like I recall that. Still, Marvel's Kingdom Come, even Justice. All of them are just great to look at. All of his work for Dynamite's great to look at. So I agree wholeheartedly with you. But definitely, if you're a fan of Marvels, look, when they reprint this, I'll have to buy another hardcover copy of Marvels because it's going to have the epilogue in the back now. Yeah. And now I don't feel like it's complete without that epilogue in it. Let's see. What else did we get from uh, Marvel this week? What else came out from Marvel this week? Did you read Amazing Spider-Man? I did. Yeah, okay. We've been talking that book the last two or three times and standard spider stuff kingpin won't let anybody harm parker to get to boomerang who is hiding something from the kingpin last issue was a filler issue and this issue is sort of another filler issue it's setting you up for future storylines this is fine nothing overly remarkable here we do see the female sinister six or the syndicate together there's six of them and they look exactly like the sinister six except they're all the female versions of these characters. They were inducting the new Electro into their organization. The Beatle was showing Electro around, talking about how females are underrepresented in the supervillain populace, and the syndicate is trying to change that. And she walks them through this building, and there's a daycare center there. I thought that was a little bit much. Yeah. I just... You know, are you the supervillain on the go and nowhere to drop your kids? How how notoriously evil can you be if you sign up with an organization because they have a wonderful daycare system <laughs> to take care of your kid while you're out killing people? <laughs> uh, so I thought that was a bit much. But otherwise, our, our review of Amazing Spider-Man still stands. It's a good run so far. Uh, Spencer is still writing it. Walker was the fill-in artist for this. He did a fine job as a fill-in artist. And we're just going to move right past that to other things that we may not have talked enough about. Did you read Moon Girl and Devil Dinosaur? I did not. I didn't get to that one. Okay, well, that's okay. I pick it up every now and again, especially when... At the store, we wanted to make sure it was okay for kids, so I'd read an issue here and there. It's usually one or two issues of a story at a time. Real simple, real straightforward. Get in, get out, have your morality play. The character, Moon Girl, Lunella, is a funny little character. Devil Dinosaur is portrayed like a giant dog. It's funny, too. It was a good kid book, but now I was looking at the upcoming Diamond solicitations for October, and... She's not on the roster. After I read this book, she may have uh, been canceled. This was a good book, and there'll be plenty of trade paperbacks and issues out there at your local comic book shop. You need something for your kid to read, especially your little girl. And this is largely aimed at 10 and under for the most part. Yeah. So I just wanted to get that in there real quick. Yeah, you know, it kind of hurt my feelings a little bit that after I read this, it was being canceled. Did you so read Valkyrie? Did I read Valkyrie? Yes, I read Valkyrie. What yeah, did I you read think Va- of Valkyrie? It's fine. I mean, it's written by Aaron and Ewing, so I guess it's sort of... I'm, I'm wondering if Aaron's just around for an arc or so before Ewing takes over. And art by, I think, Cafu? Or 
I'm not sure yeah. how you pronounce that. C A F E. Yeah, C-A-F-T. Like, it was fine. I liked, I don't think I would have cared for it as much if Bullseye wasn't in it. I'm with you. It was exactly fine. I think the most interesting draw for me in this first issue is she has an undefined power set. Yeah, like and, it's, yeah. most of the issue is Jane being, she's running around as Valkyrie and she's just sort of getting used to how, how it all works. Like, she has Valkyrie vision. She's able to go to Valhalla. Valhalla and talk to everyone and whatnot and you get a little thing with her job where she gets in trouble at her job. So they send her to work in the morgue, but it was, I mean, for what it was, it was fine. And I think putting bullseye in there, it jazzed it up enough to be like, Hey, I'll, I'll stick around and keep reading it for the time being, at least bullseye on a winged horse with Brunhilde's sword. And he kills a major as guardian right off the bat, or supposedly. so it appears. Yes, supposedly. supposedly, yes. And that's something else, his Valkyrie, and they have established this before with Danielle Moonstar in The New Mutants when she became one of the Valkyries. As Valkyrie, she can see a skull or death-like figure hovering over somebody whose demise is imminent. Yeah. So we know that she has special godlike vision that only the Valkyries apparently have. And Brunhilde, when she visited her in Valhalla, was kind of vague about the rest. Very Yoda-esque about what she could and could not do. And I think a lot of this will be about figuring out her power set. It was a fair start to the book. I kind of chuckled a bit seeing Bullseye with the sword and the horse at the yeah. end of it. Bullseye for me, that's an interesting character to team her against. It's not somebody I would have expected. I think that's exactly why they did it. Because it's not somebody you would expect to go against an Asgardian or Thor-level character. Did you read Iron Man 13? I thought this week was 14. I'm sorry, Iron Man 14? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I did read that. Okay. I could be wrong, I don't know. Well, either way, a new Iron Man issue came out this week and we've read it. What's your overall assessment? It's fine. Spymaster was in it. Yeah. I like that character. Nice little throwaway story for the fun of it. I mean, it seems like it's mostly sort of just building up an Iron Man 2020 event in the background. I was wondering this as I read it. I was thinking, surely to God, we're going to do something with Iron Man 2020. Yeah, I even think there was ads. I thought there was even an ad in this book saying we were sort of getting toward that anyway. Maybe, but when I was reading this book, here's what occurred to me. If you thought the Cavell criticism was bad, then hold on. Iron Man's in desperate need of an overhaul from Slot's overhaul. To me, this is too convoluted. We're treading the exact same ground in poorer fashion that we've treaded before. The sentient armor, the artificial intelligent rights issues... All this has been handled very well before, and we don't need to necessarily circle Tony around on this. When they pitched Slot's run on Iron Man, it was pitched as high concept book meets Black Mirror. And I'm not getting that from any of this. I'm not interested, and I'm going to say this point blank, and again, there are spoilers throughout this podcast, so this shouldn't shock anybody that we're talking about the content of it. Tony Stark is not only not a Stark because he's not the son of the Starks, but his brother or adopted brother Arno Stark is. Tony is dead, and we're just reading about his simulation with a digitized thought process. This crap, they need to stop this. Yeah, I don't know. And they did that, like, they started doing that several years back, where they just kept screwing around with Tony and his origin over and over again and doing all this other dumb stuff with him. Starting with that issue with the baby with the Iron Man helmet on the cover of it, he needs to be the son, the single son of 
Howard and Howard and Mrs. Stark. Yeah, whatever her name is. Yeah. Howard, Martha, Howard and Mrs. Stark. He needs to be their soul kid. It needs to be Tony. It doesn't need to be a fabricated simulation of Tony that's beat death somehow, but it's not really Tony. Yeah. And yeah, and also this nonsense about, look, if you're going to go back to the alcoholism, have something to add to it. David Michelinie fought hard to get Demon in a Bottle published. He had tie-in after tie-in with Jim Shooter over that. Now, normally, I don't speak as definitive about these things as I am this, but I know this because David Michelinie told myself this, an entire room full of people, and Wizard Magazine this. Demon and Bottle is one of these classic storylines that really, unless you've got something to truly add to it, don't revisit it. The other end of it is this artificial intelligence rights and the rights of the armor. And yeah, if if you if you wouldn't have brought that up, I'd completely forgot about that Jocasta subplot with that. This is kind of chasing the tail here. I mean, I see where this is going, and I hope I'm wrong about it, because that way I may be pleasantly or unpleasantly surprised. At least wouldn't have been as predictable. Well, we already sort of... It will never... This was, just, already, this was already done in the next-gen episode of Star Trek. Well, this was already done in Iron Man when the armor became sentient and fell in love with Tony Stark. Yeah. I know how that sentence I just uttered sounds, but it was very well done. And it added something to the mythology of Tony Stark. Whether or not Friday has an artificial intelligence system, had any rights, whether or not Jocasta has any rights. Yes, I understand how complicated this is in the Marvel Universe. I understand what this is an allegory for. And above all else, I really, for the most part, like Dan Slott's writing. He's doing fine in Fantastic Four, and I really enjoyed his run on Spider-Man, and especially Superior Spider-Man. But we've seen this before with Tony Stark. There's other things we could be doing. And we also kind of have to get rid of the chafe here. We need to trim him down to what he's supposed to be. Maybe they don't know what to do with Tony. It really does strike me like... Maybe they just don't know what to do with Tony anymore. Maria Stark. Her name was Maria Stark. I didn't have to look that up. It's Maria Stark because of the Maria Stark Foundation. And I also remembered that line that Cap had in Civil War about what does the number... There was a number that... Tony had classified, and somebody asked Cap, what could that possibly mean? And Captain America, as dry-witted as he is, said, knowing Tony, it has something to do with his mother. (laughs) Howard and Maria Stark. I think they're too scared of making Tony a caricature of Robert Downey. Look, if it works, it's fine. And Tony was Tony before Robert Downey was Tony. Yeah. And there's a lot of these eccentricities that Tony had that Robert Downey pulled from and added to. I wouldn't be too scared of that. I would just want to do what's best for the character. And I just do not get the sensation that what we're doing right now is at all best for the character of Iron Man. So we got that. We got Moon Girl, Devil, Dinosaur, what else? Uh, Doctor Strange, the Galactus situation. I did not get the Doctor Strange this week yet. Well, like we said last time, this is an entertaining Galactus story. You know it has to have a reset button in it because of the events in this issue. So just sit back and enjoy the ride. Galactus has been very, very busy. But this is also written by... Uh, it. Kitson is co-writing it with Wade, I believe. Mark Wade is getting his use out of Galactus this week. 
The only other Marvel I read, I think, let me go down my list, was Star Wars. Ah, Star Wars. Well, again, I, I read it. I wasn't going to say much about it because we've done a lot of the Star Wars stuff. Pack's still doing a good job on it. The storytelling in breaks. He's got three stories going on at once. You've got the book divided up into three sections, basically, where you're keeping up with three sets of characters. And I think he's doing a wonderful job on each of the characters. This seems mostly like character work to me. I mean, there's action adventure going on around them, but this mostly seems to be about what makes these characters who they are so far in this second issue. That's pretty much it. It's nothing like the stories aren't anything super special or anything. It's just here's some good interaction with the characters, and that's about it. It's just fun to read. These two issues hold promise for the rest of Pac's run on the series. Did you read Star Pig number one? Yes, I did get Star Pig number one this week. Tell us about Star Pig number one, Albert, because well, I read I it too, and I'm trying to what, figure it out. <laughs> it, there's no real plot to it yet. This girl's going, you know, she's on some spaceship, going to space camp, and her ship gets blown up. In outer space. In outer space. What's that thing that eats her? That, oh, the tardigrade. That's a little, I think it's called the bear germ or something. You even see him in Ant-Man when he Yeah, the, when he well, I can't think of what the actual, there's a name to him. I can't think of what, yeah, but, yeah. But, tardigrade. Tardigrade, yeah. Yeah, they, that thing eats her and then they team up with some other thing that's sort of a, a scavenger weird looking sentient uh, cloud yeah that's a scavenger but he's obsessed with the earth culture and american culture last week or a couple of weeks ago i was complaining about books saying oh we're unique we're different and then immediately going to barbarians and martians and so on and so forth well be careful what you wish for because we got it in star pig there's no discernible plot other than what albert just told you the giant tardigrade which somehow phases in from what i take to be a different reality into this reality swallows the young woman to save her can communicate only telepathically and based only on the thoughts that the young woman is have has so the more he's able to access her thoughts, the better he's able to communicate. And then they get picked up by scavengers led by an intelligent cloud who is exactly what he seems like, scavengers. He comments on the dead bodies from the starship exploding, saying, oh, I've never seen so many thumbs. And oh, look, this piece of metal. It is really a weird book. It is a unique book. And I'm in for issue number two. It's a well-written book. Yeah, the art's but nice, there, too. But there's no there's no hook yet to it. There's no hook in issue one. It's just, oh, it's interesting and it's written well, and that's sort of it. I'm hooked on the weirdness. Yeah. I mean, that's it. That's where they got me. This one really is, out of all the things to encounter in space, you encounter one of these tardigrades. I'm curious to see where she's going with it. The writer of the book is Delilah Dawson, and it's got very nice art in it by Francesco Gastana. It's intriguing. It's goofy. It's ridiculous fun, and it's nice art. If you got extra coin this week, yeah, pick it up. It's from IDW. Now, I also read a book from Aftershock, issue number seven, of something called It Came Out on a Wednesday. Is that? It's, I thought that was Alterna Comics. You're right. It's from Alterna Comics. It's not from Aftershock. That was my mistake. This is issue, I believe, number seven of it. It's meant to be pulp, meaning for a comic to be pulpy is fine. This is just not good pulp. I flipped through it and was just going to put it down. Then in like the last story, I saw the Satan floating around. So I was like, well, I'll read the last one. The last one was sort of okay, I guess. But yeah, the Frank Sinatra? It, yeah, but it didn't seem, it, did, it just wasn't much there. There's really not. It's meant to be pulp, but it's not good pulp. 
aren't Alterna comics cheaper? I think this was priced at a dollar ninety nine. Yeah, I want to say a lot of their stuff's fairly cheap. I, I mean, I it shows it, but yeah, they're price wise, they're cheap. You know, save the two dollars and put it towards the star pick. And that's weird <laughs> that they use Frank Sinatra because Sammy Davis Jr. was the one that was a Satanist, wasn't he? I thought Sammy Davis Jr. was Jewish. He was. I thought he was a Satanist, too. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God. Is this going to be like the police thing? I swear, Eddie Murphy Murphy even said a story about how Sammy Davis Jr. just was going to start talking about Satan. And they sort of backed off once people came in the room. But I'd heard that before. Before even that, I, I'd heard somewhere that Sammy Davis Jr.'s, Jr. was a Satanist or something. <clears throat> but don't hold me to that. Don't, don't, don't quote oh, me on that. Oh, don't worry. <laughs> don't quote me on that. You just said it on the damn podcast. <laughs> well, it's not like I called him a Scientologist or something, you know? You are getting just as weird as Jason. <laughs> Don't quote me on that, but we'll say it on the podcast. I'm Don't not editing. Me. I'm not editing any of this crap. Okay. And plus you just gave me the title and the and the graphic for this week. No, but like if you like I'd heard it years back, but like I watched comedians and cars getting coffee that that Seinfeld talk thing he does, and they had Eddie Murphy on it. Yeah, and the more recent if and even Eddie Murphy was talking about how something about him being a Satanist. I'm going to jump over to speaking of that. This is a wonderful segue into Garth Ennis's A Walk Through Hell. Have you read any of that series? No, I have not. Well, I've read like the first couple of issues, but usually Ennis, if he if he doesn't catch me on any of his work, if he's not caught me pretty much on issue one, yeah, he usually just isn't going to get me at all. So I usually just drop it after a couple of issues. Yeah, those two first issues, they were a little slower than normal. He's come all the way through to issue number 12. I think this is where the series ends. It's what you'd expect from a Garth Ennis apocalyptic storyline. You know, in all honesty, I don't know what the priests did to Ennis when he was growing up, but... Those guys need to be found and made to pay. This book is utterly nihilistic. It's bleak. It's a hopeless tale. In other words, it's Ennis at his best and has such, you get drawn into it. The reason I always end up staying with Ennis's story is because of the characters. I know how that sounds, but he really does. It's well, like it's- the boys. It's like the boys. I got hooked on Huey. I had to know how this series ended, no matter how horrific it became. On the boys, that is. And on this one as well, you do kind of get drawn into the two cops. To me, Preacher was like that. The overall arc of Custer looking for God just wasn't interesting terribly outside of the first arc. But he did all these great little side stories with all the characters that were wonderful. And then the God thing was just sort of there to every once in a while, we sort of needed to push the plot to an ending. The God stuff was just there to have an ending. In reality, he just had characters and he told a bunch, he went off and told a bunch of great stories with characters. I get the feeling that's what he did with the boys as well. And this one has a more interesting nihilistic or a nihilistic twist you didn't quite see coming it's just bleak it's dark if you like garth ennis you're going to like the story i like garth ennis but i hate that i like garth ennis writing i hear he's a charming individual personally when you meet him 
and the nicest guy on the face of the earth. But I hate that I get drawn into Garth Ennis stories because I know I'm going to be dragged down into the bile. His character work does it for me every time. So A Walk Through Hell is ended. Let's go back to the big two. Let's talk a little DC comics. Wasn't too much on DC this week. Flash number 75 or 25 came out, right? 75. 75. And that was a double-sized issue. And it was basically a flashback to his early days when he was fighting the turtle. They kind of Well, it's, it's the finale to the year one arc they did. Yeah. That's been real good. So it was, it was mostly that with a couple of backups. And he was having his memories restored to him by somebody from the Null Force or something like that. We no, learn at the end. God, what was like Spirit Force or something? Yeah, they've yeah. introduced multiple forces in Flash the same way they introduced like multiple multiple rings. Like, you know, Green Lantern had the whole spectrum there. They've yeah. done the same thing with Flash. They have not done it anywhere near as good as they have with Green Lantern. At the end of this, there's a lot of stuff going on and Barry's origins all screwy and whatnot. I thought it was a fine retelling and a reimagining of one of the lamest supervillains out there, the turtle. That was okay. And then at the end of it, he remembers being introduced by Iris to her nephews, plural, not just Wally, but Wallace. We've kind of incorporated Wally into the past history of what was the new 52 in Flash comments. I don't know how I could have forgot that. And the guy from the other, not the Speed Force, tells him that's what i'm here for to help you restore your memories what it comes down to is this going back to the iron man situation i think a lot of the ongoing superhero comics could do with losing a lot of baggage this comic iron man definitely justice league i really do feel there needs to be a culling in both of the big two's universes so far as this is concerned there's now too many ancillaries none of them are getting enough time i'd never liked the concept of different colored hulks i never liked the concept of a whole spectrum of rings with green lantern there were some points that came across in it some storytelling parts of that green lantern series that were pretty good interesting or okay i liked the concept of the blue ring hope i hated the concept of the red rings Better off we just not do it and stick to Sinestro has a yellow ring. I can, I'm can i even okay with the Sinestro core. Well, see, I, I always really enjoyed the Spectrum stuff. I always thought it was very well done. But then it leads to things like this. Now this Flash has multiple forces out there. This is getting confusing. We're adding too much onto these characters and the baggage. At some point, they're going to collapse under their own weight. I really do think we need to kind of redefine and reestablish the core of a lot of these characters. They need fresh storytelling perspectives. And again, I don't know if this is coming from the writers or editorial as much. I really don't feel as editorial has that much power anymore. We've talked about that before. I think it really varies from book to book. I think your top writers are sort of allowed to do what they want to. Yeah. If you write a B-level book, you probably get some leeway. But if you're like a C-level writer on a book that you're you're probably, I mean, I mean, there's crap that sort of let certain writers get away with on that level. But I assume a lot of these C-level books, editors are like, no, you can't do this. You can't do that. You got to do this. This contradicts the thing going in a book. So, no, you can't do that. Well, no, but we're not getting that. Again, Batman is was out in the middle of the desert at the same time that he's petitioning the interdimensional council to... Well, Help and Justice League. But both their books are written by their A writers, though. Yeah. So I, editors, I still think editors going to have a very hands-off approach on those books anyway because of that. I do not think that needs to be policy. 
I think they need to be reined in on that if that's the case. If the writers are running off the ranch with these things, they need to understand that they're playing in the same sandbox as a lot of other storylines and need to be respectful of it. Just I mean, for I the agree. I, I, I mean, I completely agree with that. Did you read Freedom Fighters? Uh, no, I did not read that one. I'm enjoying the read, but I like the alternate reality. And again, I was complaining about violence and bleakness with Garth Ennis, but somehow or other, if we have an alternate reality where these true blue American heroes like Uncle Sam, the Phantom Lady, the Human Bomb are fighting against Nazis that have taken over that reality's earth, it's grotesque, but at the same time engaging because you know these heroes have got to come out on top of this somehow. Yeah. Like, you know, like at some point uncle Sam's going to win or, you know, something like that. So I like their take on the plastic men. It's all a very disturbing twilight zone, very comic book feel, a lot of violence in it, a lot of intense situations, and they don't really pull any punches with their Nazis. Their Nazis are bad guys. Yeah. It's just a, again, it's not for everybody, but it's a good take on the Freedom Fighters, and I'm glad that they gave them their own alternate reality Earth because they never worked, the Freedom Fighters never worked within the confines of the mainstream DC universe. And that's simply because the Freedom Fighters always had to have Nazis to fight. Whereas Captain America made the transition well, these guys don't without Nazi Germany nipping at their heels. Yeah. I'm enjoying that. That was a good read. And their own issue number seven of a 12-issue series, I believe. Uh, Vendetti is the writer and Redondo is the artist. The art's nice in it. If you're looking for another DC book with, with new takes on classical DC characters, pick this one up. Did you read uh, Dial H? I did not read Dial H. Dial H is a very, very good book. Dude has a hero dial. He types in the word hero on it or spells it out and turns it to a random superhero. Uh-huh. Uh, they've done a, a really great job on the art. Every time the character would turn into a new goofy hero, art would reflect that. This one works a little different. Is that in issue five, he's going through what's like a pocket dimension called the hero verse, trying to chase this uh, villain called Mr. Thunderbolt. And there's a sort of a guy helping him out called the operator. The neat thing about this issue is that as he's going through the hero verse, he's going through different DC characters origins and, and it's the actual origin pages how Jordan's origin here's Wonder Woman's origin there's a bit at the front where he's going through Batman's origin from year one and everything it's, to me it's more of a, a book that's more neat with the way it's structured and framed and how the artwork tells the story than anything else it's just a really good book I really enjoy well, you see, I'll go back and read all of that. Dial H for Hero, I've tried it a couple of times in a couple of their past reboots. It never had a hook for me. But you describing that, that's actually something I'd like to see. So I'll go back and catch up on that. Yeah, and, our, and to bring up our weekly Rob Liefeld thing, there is a bit like an issue one where the hero <laughs> turns into a Liefeld character. Uh huh. And the art is just, they're just making fun of Liefeld in that art. <laughs> Uh, would you like to take this opportunity to try to connect Rob Liefeld to Sammy Davis Jr. and Satanism? <laughs> you know, if anyone in the comic book industry is a Satanist, it'd have to be Rob Liefeld. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm moving right on now. Of course, we both read Detective 1008. We did. It was a nice little throwaway one-off Joker story that we don't... It's a one-shot. 
Are they not supposed to have three Jokers? Whatever became of that? I would imagine that's something that we get to whenever Doomsday Clock finishes. And from my understanding, like they've shown off, because Jeff Johns is writing that, and it's only three issues long, from my knowledge, and Fabok is doing the art. It's it's being worked on, but it, it may not be something that hits till Doomsday Clock finishes. I'm not too sure on that. Or at least till issue 10 hit. It seems issue 10 of Doomsday Clock. Wait, or is it 11? It's... <laughs> Maybe 11, to the, whatever the next issue of Doomsday Clock is, because, God, I can't remember it, because there's I lost track of issues. It seems like the next issue of Doomsday Clock's the big the big reveal, the big laying it all out, and here's how everything's going down type issue. And that comes out in November. I lost track of Doomsday Clock's sequencing sometime around, I think, March of 2017. <laughs> But yeah, this is just a straightforward, one-shot, classic Joker story. No encumbrances. There's no Gotham Girl. There's no Nightwing Squad or anything. It's just Batman having to appease the Joker. Joker Joker takes over a affair, and Batman's got to stop him. And then there's a little hook at the end with the Year of the Villain stuff. And that's sort of it. Like It's just a good good little one-off Joker story. Again, I'm still calling this the best in continuity Batman book. I agree. It is. If, yeah, it's their best. I can't think of any other Batman book that's better than this interact of continuity. So, yeah, it's their best Batman book. Well, okay. Now let's move on to Batman Curse of the White Knight then. Mm-hmm. What's your take? You go uh, first. Very, it's good. It's a really good follow-up to White Knight. Uh, Sean Phillips is, is a fantastic artist. Fantastic. He's a way better writer than I would have thought he would have been. This is Sean Murphy, right? Sean, yeah, Sean Murphy. My bad. Sean Phillips, different. Yeah, Sean Murphy, a fantastic artist, way better writer than I would imagine him being. It's a good little, you know, out of continuity Batman story. Why the hell is Sean Murphy not in charge of the Batman book? This is Batman. To me, this is Batman as he should be. From costume design to the dialogue to the art to the storytelling, this book is everything that Tom King's Batman book is not. And you know what? There was one point that Batgirl offered a story, has an analogy to a situation. And do you know how much space that story took up? One panel. Yeah, it was just a simple, like, it. that was it, and that's all there was to it. Well, that's it. One panel. One f- panel, King. But that was it. That was all. Sean Murphy, the way you were going on about Alex Ross, I think they should approach Sean Murphy and ask him, what does it take to put you on Batman's mainstream title? I, well, he, doesn't, well he, may, he may not be suited for that because I'm pretty sure that his, his art and everything takes a good long while. So, yeah, so well, just getting can, an art once a year out of him is probably the most you're going to do. Look, we can keep the artist on Batman. I don't have a problem with the artist on Batman, but I really do believe that Sean Murphy has the right angle on Batman. I know this is an alternate reality story. This read like a much more mature Batman animated to me. The yeah. first volume of it was very well done, but for some reason, this first issue just hooked me right off <laughs> right off the bat. Just hooked me right away, and I was into it. I, I really do. I cannot sing Sean Murphy's praises enough when it comes to his portrayal of Batman. Yep, A-plus book on that one. Uh, the only other DC I've read is Action 1013 by Bendis. I did not read that. Who is Jor-El talking to in the bathroom this week? No, that's Superman. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> better than the last issue of action. It seems to have more of a plot to it. Still a Leviathan tie-in, and they're still trying to figure out who Leviathan is, but there's there's more to it. I mean, nothing too big. Yeah, and that's pretty much it. It's a lot weak on DC. Well, this is a four-Wednesday month. Yeah. yeah, on four-Wednesday months, you're going to have one or two weeks that are a little lighter than others. Next five-Wednesday. Oh, yeah. Shoot. Four-Wednesday months are normal. Five-Wednesday months, like... Yeah we have this month are going to be a little lighter for one or two weeks than usual. The big release this week, House of X. What'd you think about it? I've thought a lot about it, and I do not think that what we're seeing in House of X and by proxy what we will be seeing in Powers of X, I don't think that's how the X-Book relaunch is going to start. This is an introduction, and I think this is going to be a self-contained story with a resolution by October, when X Men number one comes out, New Mutants number one, X Force number one, and all those books. I don't, I don't, there's a lot, there's a whole lot of stuff set up in this issue for that just to be all wrapped up in, in any conceivable way. At the end of, based on the way Hickman writes, yeah. none of the, I don't think any of this is going to be wrapped up. Let's take this in pieces because, dear Lord, for one book, he certainly put everything into it. Do we know for a fact that the guy in the Cerebro looking helmet? And dressed in black, do we know for a fact that's Xavier? No, Xavier is running around like in a Phantom X clone body or something. Oh, uh, could be, but he's disregarding so, this. Yeah, this, this now his design, his character design, and even the way he sort of talks is very, very similar to the Maker, which is yeah. the evil Reed from the Ultimate Universe that Hickman has, has written well, several times. Yeah, I don't, that, I don't think that's who that is. That's sort of what we're getting led into to an extent. Even the headgear is reminiscent on yeah. him. And look, the connection there is, is that the Fantastic Four do appear in this issue as well. Yeah, this book shows its hand on a lot of stuff as far as what Hickman's setting up. I thought it was a nice foundation. I thought it was a good setup and it gave us a lot to deal with. I want more information, but I also trust that that information will be forthcoming because Hickman's proven himself in the past on similar situations as this. You you end up with questions. I can't think of a time he hasn't provided an answer to the questions. Yeah, and this, this book, like they even jumped six months into the future to start it off and just the X-Men have their own island. Mutants have their own island nation that's only accessible through a crack. Krakoa, it's not just an island nation that is krakoa from giant size x yeah. one the island itself is a mutant only mutants can really go there or if humans or anything are apparently allowed to go there they have to go with with, uh, with, you know, with someone and krakoa uh, has to approve it magneto's running around with his superiority over anyone that's human which is crazy to me that, that he would be the the diplomat and all this for the mutants. Regardless of what Magneto says, mutants have blown up cities and waged wars with each other. And all Him this, being like one it, of the mutants that has done all that. Yeah, they're mentioning like total amnesty for mutants. And they do this after Reed and Fantastic Four catch Sabretooth. And Cyclops is like, he's come with me. And Reed's like, this guy just is a crazy serial killer. He just attacked security guards and... Them security guards are probably going to die, and you just expect me just to hand them over to you? Hickman has a very special gift as a writer, that he can walk that fine line, especially with these, for everything we love about them, they're unbelievable, out-there characters. But when Cyclops shows up on the scene, the first thing he does is go over and congratulate Ben Grimm on his wedding. Ben Grimm thanks him, slaps him on the shoulder, and calls him Slim. 
because they're old friends. And then there's the threat of a conflict over who gets custody of Sabretooth because Cyclops wants to take him back to Krakoa for complete amnesty. And of course, the Fantastic Four is not down for that. And Cyclops pauses an awkward beat and then decides, oh, we'll let it go. We'll talk about this later. There's no need for a conflict over this. And then makes the passive aggressive statement as he starts to walk back through the portal to Krakoa of let Franklin know that I asked about him and that he has family waiting for him on Krakoa. So here, here's the big hook of all this. It comes down to, and some of it's not as obvious as others, how the mutants plan, Professor X and everyone plans on getting their island recognized as a nation is that they have these cure-all drugs that they're going to give out to the people of the world, and the countries that get it are the countries that acknowledge them as a as nation-state. Uh, nation based on everything we know, these are the same type of drugs that Doom gives out to the people of Latveria. Well, it is a very Doom-Latverian situation. As a matter of fact, I couldn't help but consider that over and over again, people have said to Doom, you have, there's no one sick here in Latveria. There's no one suffering in Latveria. There's no disease in Latveria. Why don't you share this with the rest of the world? And Doom says, I will be more than happy to share it with the rest of the world, when the rest of the world bends knee to Doom. So, so going back to Doom, Doom is ultimately, could be one of the most important characters of this run. You really think so? Yeah. I know Hickman has a... Hickman's worse than me Here, when it comes to do. In the same way with Tony, to an extent. Here's where the X-Men are going to screw up. X-Men are going to go pick a fight with the Fantastic Four. <laughs> they're going to they're gonna kidnap Franklin. When you read this book, this book is this book is almost laid out. Like you're reading the freaking Mueller Report or something. Yeah. It's got all these charts and files and all this other crazy Hickman stuff. He, like he loves putting off his stuff. There's a page where Hickman lays out his rules for Omega Mutants. And there's a list of Omega Mutants. And in that list, they're all just marked normal with the exception of Franklin. Franklin Richards Franklin is in red. red and marked that his alliance is human. Whoever's behind that Professor X mask, whether it's Maker, Professor X himself, or whoever, they want Franklin and they're going to kidnap Franklin. When they do, Reed is going to come down on them harder than he has come down on anyone else. And at the same time, you know what else is going to happen? Val ain't going to sit there and wait for her dad to do anything. She's going to go hop in a fantastic car, go to Varia, and be like, Uncle Doom, they've kidnapped my brother, and I want him back. Doom's going to be like, I'll take care of this. <laughs> so Hickman's phantom... <laughs> Hickman's X-Men run could actually turn to be turn out to be Hickman's Fantastic Four Doctor Doom run, and the X-Men are just supporting players. Well, he, he, we got to remember his his Avengers run did the same thing. That's his true. Avengers run just sort of ended. You know, it sort of went into Doom's got it all figured out because Doom is it. Well, yeah, it took the Illuminati and then the Avengers three or four years to come up with a plan, and they didn't come up with anything. Doom learns about the encroaching disintegration of all reality three weeks ahead of time in the Avengers run that led up to Secret Wars, and he grabs Doctor Strange and uh, the Molecule Man and is waiting for the Beyonders to crash through the universe on the end of it. As interested as I was in this book, hearing what you think is about to happen, and I did notice that Franklin's name was highlighted in red as well, but hearing what you think about it, I am all on board for this. It's important to point out, though, that the X-Men are not at all acting like the X-Men in this. Magneto 
seems pretty much like himself. And that could also just be by design off of, we'll just say he's Professor X. Off, You know, Professor X could be low-key low key manipulating everyone. Or the, the maker moves. or whoever that is. Yeah, he could, he could, because that cerebral, that he's wearing that cerebro helmet. And he could, you know, that cerebro helmet can hook him up to all the mutants and he could low key be influencing, putting little, just a little, a push there psychologically to get them all to do what he wants. Okay, a couple of other points here. What makes me say that they're not acting like themselves is Wolverine is out in the middle of a field playing with children. Yeah. At the beginning of the book, we see these pods spit out who I assume are Cyclops and Jean Grey. Well, Spit- it's like some weird funky tree thing with all these little, yeah, these little cocoon pods on it. Well, if you go back to, if you go back to giant size X-Men, you remember that the original X-Men plus Havoc and Polaris were all hooked to similar looking vines and all being drained of their power that Krakoa was feeding off of them. I can't help but feel that there's a connection there. Bottom line is, is I don't think the X-Men are necessarily the X-Men. I don't think they're in their right minds right now. Like you implied, it could be because of the guy, whoever is in the Cerebro-esque helmet. I keep leaning more and more that that's probably the maker, that that's not exactly. Could you imagine what would happen if, if Doom and Magneto got in a fight? <laughs> they'd, they'd, rip, they'd rip Krakoa to shreds. Like, that's, that's what's going to happen. It's come to that a couple of times, and Magneto has always stood down from Doom. That's just wise. Yeah, and, they've also, and they reference other things here. Like, there's the page where they go through all the security ad- items, and there's, like, Soul's Hammer and Soul's amb- Anvil yeah. listed from Tony yeah. Stark, and that's all from that's all from Hickman's stuff. At the end of this thing, it's going to be quite a messed up thing going on. This is going to be a hell of a roller coaster ride. And, it's gonna, and it, yeah, I think it's, it all comes down to they're going to wage war. The Fantastic Four... And the mutants, and maybe the Avengers are going to back the Fantastic Four if they're going to wage a war over Franklin. Well, now I'm kind of hoping for your prediction to be true. I would love to see that. I would love to see Doom and Magneto tie up. And, this who, would... and, who, and who writes a better Doom than Hickman alive? Well, nobody. nobody does. That's what I'm saying. Doom is, I, I am a big Doom fan. But Hickman far outstrips me when it comes to being a fan of Doom. And he's he's admitted this several times, how big of a fan of Dr. Doom he is. By all means, this book, the opening act is well worth your money. And strap in because we don't know where it's going. We just know it's going to be, like we said, a hell of a ride. And whatever's going on, there's at the very last page, well, not the last page, but at the end of the book, there's a reading order, House of X and Powers of X, which in reality, you just you just read them in the order they come out. No yeah. two books hit the same week, but three of those issues are highlighted red. Oh, oh, okay. All right. Well, I'm even more excited for this than I was when we started the podcast and when I read it. So I'm going yeah, to go I'm back and look at it again. Forgetting, even though I was looking forward to this, but after, after this issue of House of X, I'm bought into it a thousand percent. And to answer the question we've been asking on previous podcasts, apparently Hickman just completely ignores anything that's happened before. Yeah. I also think the pod thing on the trees may be an out. That could be a quick out as far as bringing back the dead characters that died that are, that they don't have to overly explain how they came back. It could just be like, ah, we threw them in a pod or we had the tree grow them again or something like that. Krakoa healed them somehow. All right. Well, that pretty much rounds it up for this week. Uh, Next week, we're going to try to do a bonus podcast in the next two weeks on the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And also Endgame, I believe, comes out on streaming next week. You got anything? That's it. 
That's it. We got the Hoover Library this week. Hoover Library is this weekend, so stop by there. We've said enough about it, or we've said plenty about it in previous podcasts. Even had a special one, so go back and listen to it. Other than that, if you've got any questions, comments, or anything, just contact us on Kingdom Casts. That's Kingdom, C-A-S-T-S, at gmail.com, or follow us as Kingdom Comics on Facebook. I'm Stan Daniel, and with me as always is Albert Marsh. Watch out for them Satanists. Good night, Albert. Good night, Stan.